Welcome everybody, and thanks for joining us for the next installment of the Rocky Mountain Myrick Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. We are so happy to have you join us on the show, and uh, we're really excited. Today we have a returning guest, Dr. Daniel DeBrule. Uh, Daniel is an assistant professor of medicine, as well as an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Baylor College of Medicine. And he's also suicide prevention coordinator for the Southeast Louisiana Veterans Healthcare System. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So uh, just to recap to our listeners who may be tuning in for the first time, we had Daniel on the show maybe a year and a half ago. We were able to meet up at the American Association of Suicidology Conference and really had a great chat. So case you're wanting to go back in time a little bit, for sure check out our first episode with Daniel. But for today, we are going to talk on the growing and emerging field of post-traumatic growth. So with that, can I turn it over to you a little bit, Daniel, and give us a little introduction into PTG, as some call it? Sure, absolutely. I think PTG is uh, what we can go with for post-traumatic growth from here on out. And it's a really intriguing concept. I was very fortunate that this is a concept I've been working with and studying and researching for over two decades now. I was lucky that growing up in the Carolinas, I ended up spending some time at UNC Chapel Hill my first few years, but yet I could never really get in with some of the faculty to do research. And for a variety of reasons, I decided to go my last two years at University of North Carolina at Charlotte, which is a little bit closer to home for me and had uh, better job opportunities. I was able to be a private school teacher there for biology and algebra and stuff like that. But perhaps the biggest benefit for me finishing there was I had the luxury to work with my two mentors, Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun. And Tedeschi and Calhoun coined the term post-traumatic growth back in the early 90s. And prior to, I got to UNCC there in the late 90s, but prior to my arrival, they they had both spent their careers researching topics very germane to many of us who have been, you know, AAS members and attending AAS for a number of years. They researched a lot of suicidal bereavement, and and one of their studies, which was an offshoot of that, they were researching the concept of wisdom, and they found that invariably the people that would score very high on these measures of wisdom quantitatively, or if they were examining interviews and, and looking at qualitative data, invariably the folks that tended to have the largest or maybe most robust cases of wisdom were those who had pretty pervasive trauma histories. And they continued to go back through the literature and find that there are a lot of concepts that are very similar to post-traumatic growth, which simply put is uh, enduring benefits or enduring change that occurs post-crisis, post-trauma. And these are usually manifest in areas such as personal strength, interpersonal relationships, philosophy of life, spirituality, and so forth. And the concept is certainly not foreign to any of us. Calhoun and Tedeschi would admit that all of our greatest thoughts were stolen by the ancients. We've seen in a lot of religious texts and a lot of historical texts, case after case of people who go through a tremendous adversity or trauma and then, and then over time emerge as something different. And I think there's so many different conceptual issues that occur within the context 
of PTG and one is the passage of time that usually these benefits do not occur just after the trauma. You may, in many cases, take years. Uh, and other studies find that at the same time that some individuals are experiencing pretty moderate PTSD symptoms, they may also be experiencing growth, which is, you know, maybe a bit counterintuitive, but maybe it's not really like a finished recipe or a finished process of growth, but maybe already just in the a few months after, say, physical assault or really bad accident with a, a good chance of uh, fatality, something that would be more or less agreed upon as traumatic, that some of their, say, personal strength might emerge just, uh, or maybe the family really ra- rallies around them and some of their interpersonal relationships ha- have been enhanced. But going from that, we were looking at a lot of examples and trying to think outside the box of not just trauma survivors, which I think are always going to be our main sample, our main population that experiences PTG. What are some other examples of that? For example, one one of the studies I did for my honors thesis was on athletic injury and how many of these athletes, if they had a career-ending injury, experienced pretty significant symptomatology after that. This wasn't just your weekend warrior who no longer can do the the Ironman for a few months. These were athletes, a, a couple of them were um, representatives for their national Olympic teams uh, in different countries, and many of them looking to go to the next level to basically make a career out of their sport. And I think that's a good example on how uh, an event that might not be construed as traditionally traumatic still has this quality. There was a, a good book written by Ronnie Janoff Bullman in 92 called Shattered Assumptions, and they worked, Tedeschi and Calhoun worked closely with Janoff Bullman on some of their chapters and some of their articles. And one of the main points is that it often takes some type of seismic event, whether or not traumatic is one way to look at that. But just the fact that the event really shatters, you know, the cognitive architecture of the individual, it might destroy some of their beliefs, like some of these athletes who thought this is going to be my livelihood and this is what I've devoted my career to. And now having to think about what what else could I maybe do uh, for a career and all this. There were also a lot of there was also a lot of work that I did in transcribing audio tapes from bereaved parents who lost their children to suicide, and we were examining different patterns with with bereavement and and growth there. And so I think the main point to be taken from all that is that any event that's really severe and seismic can, in some cases, result in PTG. One of the many issues is that PTG might often get confused with resilience, and resilience is simply returning to the pre-trauma or pre-event level of functioning, whereas post-traumatic growth is going above and beyond that, at least in certain areas. And there are some good review papers on what an umbrella term could be used for adversarial growth. There's others such as Tennant and Affleck that talk about benefit finding. There's others that talk about stress-related growth. So even if, say, you're just in a highly stressful profession, that even though even if you don't see garden variety trauma, then maybe you experience the stress-related growth. But again, I think that more than a lot of these other offshoots of advers- adversarial growth, PTG is the one that's probably has hundreds of, of articles behind it. And uh, Tedeschi and Calhoun have written several books, including Trauma and Transformation, uh, Clinician's Guide to Facilitating Post-Traumatic Growth, 
And then actually for any of our listeners who are like myself and work a lot with survivors, they've also authored a really good book on uh, bereavement for parents if a child dies by suicide or any kind of other traumatic means. So that's a little bit about the background of PTG. And it's interesting that both my mentors and many of us and many colleagues in the field bridge that gap between trauma and suicidology. Those are for ever since I was in undergrad there with them and throughout grad school in my career. Those have been my two areas of interest. So it's nice to see them intersect. And one more point I'll make before we do some more Q&A is that I think it's just uh, great to look at that other side of the coin. Sadly, I think sometimes PTG might be considered like a positive psychology movement. I know Calhoun in particular would probably have a qualm with that. It's not really optimism or flourishing uh, in, in the Martin Seligman world, but optimism is something that might predispose people to growth. And I think of post-traumatic growth as being something a little bit more, I don't know, stoic and not quite as I don't know, pleasant per se, but just this kind of more enduring sense of one's strength and one's uh, spirituality. Maybe I'd, I'd actually argue maybe something a bit more, maybe ethereal or tough to, to pin down. And I'll, I'll talk maybe a little bit more later about how I've got several colleagues in the field who are carrying that torch of taking more of a growth oriented mindset. I think that's really important for many of us in the field of suicide. Yeah, thank you for that really thorough explanation. I think you really shed some light on what is post-traumatic growth and how does it differ between resilience and some of these other kind of terms that people throw around. And I'm glad you did distinguish between that because I hadn't actually realized that resilience was so different. Even just thinking it is a little bit different from returning to your previous level as really expanding beyond where you ever were. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the and, and there's really some debate about that in the literature. I, one of my, I got to say, AAS, of course, probably not surprisingly, is by far my favorite conference and just all the people that I've gotten to know over the years and catching up and sharing ideas. I had an experience at APA not too long ago with a really well-known resilience uh, researcher. And we talked about the concept of post-traumatic growth after one of his talks, and he really just dismissed it and mentioned that maybe we just grow over time and just walked away. And I will admit that there's probably a lot of people that are a bit agnostic or non-believers in, in the movement. I think the vast majority of us can still appreciate those cases in which it happens. It gets tricky, too, I think, in working with post-traumatic growth in a clinical context because one of the main caveats that we often share with clinicians is to not to, to maybe use some prompting and a general sort of framework that perhaps some of these things you went through while being terrible and gut-wrenching and heartbreaking at, at times could lead to other changes. But yet there should be no expectation of growth. In a lot of research studies, some find it's 30, 40% on the low end. Others might find it's up to two-thirds or you know, three-fourths or 80-something percent that experience growth, but it's really hard to find studies out there that find to a person that people are experiencing growth. So I think I'd, uh, that's another point that should be made, that not everyone experiences post-traumatic growth, and it is a very slow, very, at least in many cases, it takes a lot of time. And this is what really makes it so difficult for us to capture in research. We have the post-traumatic growth inventory that Tedeschi and Calhoun created back in the mid-90s as well. And that is a 21-item measure with four, uh, I'm sorry, five different domains that came out in factor analysis uh, that mapped to some of the ones I mentioned previously. 
And yet we also have a shorter version and then uh, a more comprehensive version. And I believe in Japanese, as well as a few other languages, the post-traumatic growth inventory has been adapted. The conceptual issues that come up, though, in many cases is that if we do an intervention like I did in my master's thesis, where I had uh, college students journal about their trauma and use the Pennebaker writing paradigm or expressive writing, you usually aren't going to see much movement in post-traumatic growth over the course of just a few months. And I think that's something else to think about in terms of clinical practice, that if I'm working with uh, a survivor or I'm working with someone who is post-attempt, there's a lot of things we're doing simply to aid recovery and try to work on things like sleep hygiene or CBT for depression or DBT for coping. And all those really fit into the model for post-traumatic growth. We we have to get people to a point to where they're at least maybe returning to their normal routines and enjoying things out of life that they'd like to enjoy and hopefully resolve some elements of the trauma as post-traumatic growth is, is slowly coming in many cases. However, I think that there are certain cases where some therapists might keep the focus so much on the negative thoughts and all of the different symptoms that they're experiencing without leaving a little bit of time or maybe just some gentle prompting about maybe as time goes on, there'll be a good way, for example, to honor your loved one in this way or that way. And that's something that I find really intriguing about post-traumatic growth in the context of suicide in particular, some of the topics that I think historically it's been survivorship that's been really uh, interesting to me and that I've worked in a lot. But over the past couple of years, developing more of an interest and passion in lived experience and thinking about how we can, for those of us who've experienced those sorts of things and how we can, you know, facilitate growth in a way that's both speaks to the fact that the events people go through can be just so significant and so moving, but yet maybe just maybe over time, if we can prompt them and take what Tedeschi calls an expert companion role, then hopefully we simply provide a framework or set the stage for growth to to occur and for our clients to explore the different areas that they might want to grow in. And in, in the field of suicide, either survivorship or lived experience, the, the biggest area I see that in is advocacy. So many people, and maybe I'm a bit, I have a bit of a biased sample because of the people that I'm around that are doing just, you know, tremendous things with their work. But yet I'm curious to see over time if we have more empirical studies that might highlight how post-traumatic growth might manifest a little bit differently or maybe a little bit in newer areas than you might think in other more traditional forms of trauma. Yeah, I'm really glad that you are transitioning into talking about post-traumatic growth in the context of suicide. I feel like I'm really interested in that and I, I feel like that's how we recently connected as well. I was, our group at the Rocky Mountain Myrick was organizing a Survivors of Suicide Loss Day event and actually that's how we reconnected as I was reaching out to the group of among the AAS listserv subscribers and trying to learn a little bit more about how people organize their events and what types of uh, content they incorporate in. And so I want to say two things about that, and then I'll let you jump back in. So one is this idea of advocacy, I think is really important and interesting. Even the videos that they feature during these events and just over and over again, people who have really taken it under their wing that they suffered this really difficult loss in their life and and they want to do something about preventing suicide and I'm, I'm very interested to hear you comment a bit more on that and then the other piece was that how the arts 
are incorporated into post-traumatic growth. And art can take so many forms. And the one that interested me for this purpose of this event is music, but also just curious about having you touch in on what are some ways that people transform that post-traumatic growth into healing and and recovery and, and finding new meaning and how the arts specifically are incorporated into that. Sure, absolutely. Let me really quickly mention a few different colleagues and resources for folks that are interested to learn more. And and then we'll talk maybe about how people could, for your example, which I think is where a lot of us are at, if we're going out to a, an awareness walk or we're doing an event in a college campus or at the VA where I've been for many years, what could we, what resources could we share and how could we promote the concept without perhaps again, giving those expectations of growth. And first of all, I wanted to mention a few colleagues, and these are a lot of colleagues that I've worked with over the years and presented with, such as Melinda Moore, who's done a lot of work in looking at post-traumatic growth on and TAPS for uh, survivors of military suicide. And I believe she has a website on post-traumatic growth, if any of you would like to access that. I know, and, it, and it's been cool to see how a lot, just while even if, colleagues that I interact with and that I support some of their their new programs. It it may not mention post-traumatic growth specifically, but yet again, it really has that growth approach to it. The one that I can think of right now is Eduardo Vega, a friend of mine who has his new Growing Through uh, Peer Support Program. And then I also wanted to mention, of course, Julie Sorrell, who one of our past presidents, and Chris Rapoe, who I've uh, worked with for a number of years going back to our time at IU South Bend, but they've authored a few works as well, looking at post-traumatic growth in, in suicide survivors. And I think, sadly, there isn't a ton of studies, empirical studies, on attempt survivors or those with lived experience specifically. And there are many studies where they might comprise a small percentage of the sample that, that was being examined. But I also wanted to mention there, there are some resources. There's a lived experience camp supporting post-suicidal growth. This is a group that's uh, maintained by Dr. Quincy, the Quincy Lazine. And uh, so feel free to check that out for any of you who have interests as well. So again, it's really neat to see. I, and this is something I probably haven't shared with anyone at this point, but among the many really interesting and very personal conversations that I would have with Tedeschi and Calhoun about the concept and you know, how I could continue to work in the field and promote these kinds of con- this concept. Calhoun had said to me right before he retired that, well, if, if you are going to do something in the field, there's been so much done on post-traumatic growth, you may want to think about maybe rebranding PTG, maybe calling it something a little bit different that might speak more to maybe a, a newer generation. And I think that's happening. And that's one of the many things that definitely builds my passion and interest in the field. In terms of the doing like a walk or some type of awareness event, I think at this point, I don't know what, I think it would really vary. I, I got to say again, there it, it can be such a delicate process. For example, one of the clients that I was working with had gone through a pretty significant, what many would conceptualize as a complex trauma. And I had, uh, we were working on some post-traumatic growth items and the post-traumatic growth handbook that Tedeschi authored with another psychologist, Brett Moore. And the for any who look at that post-traumatic growth workbook know that part of the process is going into details about the trauma. And 
that would be one that I would maybe use thoughtfully in, in a clinical context. But some of the other books that they've authored that are older, such as Trauma and Transformation, I think those might have, and it's a very quick read too. I think it's only about 70, 80 pages. Maybe this is something actually I could work on. And if anyone has interest, I'd be glad to send them a few resources. So I would think about maybe just introducing the concept and just mentioning that, hey, there's a movement about growth happening after these events. And yet knowing that if the person reading this is a mother who's lost their child two to three months ago, they may not be in a place for it. I would probably use... I would say the analogy here is very similar to Frank Campbell's loss program and how Frank and his team or teams now across the country and across the world will go out to the survivors and simply give information. And whenever you are ready for this, here's how you can contact us. And here's some of the support groups that might be available and so forth. Maybe having a, a similar process as that of just a list of resources and, and contact information I know one of many things I've been glad to see is that the the new VA postvention program, which might be something I know you guys there and, and your visitor and in your MyRec are certainly promoting it really well and always think of that and maybe over time how maybe even the postvention program can incorporate some elements of PTG. And in terms of the, of the arts, without a doubt, the kind of subfield that I've become the most interested in, attentively planning to put a lot of my focus into in the years to come. Because what I've found for me personally is that it really is that music. And I've seen this time and time again. Growing up, different people might have spent a lot of time with, say, and different hobbies and interests they have for me that was always playing guitar and going to shows and over time learning more instruments and how to record music and all this. And I think there's something to be said for that process. And some of the many things that can promote post-traumatic growth include allowing the individual to have more deliberate rumination where they're thinking about the trauma, but doing it purposefully and trying to really really direct the thoughts in, in their own way versus the, the more intrusive rumination that many studies obviously would find does not predict growth or might prevent growth, one would argue. So rumination is a key thing, but yet it's really tough to ruminate if you're trying to work your way through a very difficult piece, uh, whether or not you're playing something classical or alt-rock like I enjoy or jazz or, or whatever it is. I think there's a lot of promise and a lot of value to those that will engage in the type of experience I think people can still get, even if they're simply attending a concert or they're listening to a song. I know there's a lot of really interesting debate on our listserv, which was really awesome to see. And I, I totally get the point for many that you have to be maybe a little bit tentative or a little bit thoughtful about having a survivor listen to certain songs or music that's very moving. But yet my take would be if those emotions are bound to up to the surface and need an outlet, then what better outlet for music? And there again, I'm, I'm probably speaking more to my own personal biases. But, but I do think there's a power, too, in just the community of music. One experience I'll share that happened just a few years ago, one of the many musicians I had the pleasure to either meet or just be inspired by, one at the top of the list for me was Chris Cornell, the lead singer guitarist for Soundgarden, Audio Slave, Temple of the Dog. He had a lot of solo stuff, a very, very, really extensive career and, and just so many songs and many people would tout him as the, one of the few with a four octave voice and all this. And Chris Cornell died by suicide. It's been over two years ago. And I think many of us were just really struck that this is at a time where 
many others from his generation had fallen victim to suicide like uh, Kurt Cobain or to drug addiction like Lane Staley of Alice in Chains. But yet Chris Cornell was one that seemed to rise to the top and he had had family, two kids, and it's the typical case of no one could really see it coming, but maybe in retrospect we could. And in the aftermath of that, I think that's I'm not sure what resources are out there when you lose your hero to suicide. That's something I'm curious about. But we had a a band page where there was about 10,000 members, and a lot of us were just sharing how tough it was and how much it was so unexpected. And it, it was really interesting. I think a lot of people probably, even though it may not be someone that they actually personally knew, they felt the sting as if it was someone that really, for whatever, was like a mentor to them or had this personal contact because the the emotional content of the songs was very heavy. And so I think many people like myself resonated with that. But our solution down here in Texas was to get some people together. And my friends, Monica and JD Stump and Charlotte Wise, and a lot of us all got together to put on some awareness events. And so we get together once a year in Austin, and we each take turns singing songs that were written by our hero. And we raised money for, I think last year, we raised it for the uh, local, it's called HAM, the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians. And then the year before, we raised funds for NAMI, for the local NAMI chapter. That's something that, and for other people, it might look something like something very different. It might look like a bike tour. It might look like a, again, an awareness walk. It might look like if people are really into their church, it may be organizing a yearly event that's similar, that speaks to awareness at a a place of faith. But in many of those cases, I think music and the arts is the common denominator. And can't really say enough that even for many of us going to, there was a big show in in Los Angeles featuring a lot of musicians. And so several of us from around the country uh, got to go there and meet up. And so I, I think that's really key. Obviously, survivors might feel so alone, but when it's someone that many people knew in a public setting like that, I think there's a lot of ways to go around it. But In a more general sense, yeah, I think just engaging in the process and allowing the music to unearth some of those really deep emotions, of course, being done in the appropriate context and when people have the appropriate resources to reach out if they get overwhelmed, I think it can be definitely a cathartic tool. Absolutely. Yeah, you you touched on so many great points there with how multifaceted that experience is. So there's the music creators, the people performing it, there's the people experiencing it and listening to it, and then there's the drive behind it in terms of it maybe raising money, maybe raising awareness, and just having that all come together in a community. A lot of factors working to drive that growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also where the literature hasn't been too replete with information. I think there's a lot for the individual survivor to consider, but yet how we can, you know, really scale these on a community level, I think that's one of many future areas that that we should be thinking about. Yeah, I wanted to uh, touch back on the point you made about in the context of an environment where it's supportive and helpful. And this goes back to that listserv debate that sort of came up, which was, can music in some ways be triggering? And to what extent is bringing up that those very sometimes raw emotions, good, bad? And, and I think, as you mentioned, a lot of it depends on the context. And could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, again, it's really so contextual and it's so individualistic. 
whereas I might prefer to do that now. I will admit, though, there there is music that I know has such a strong emotional content for me that I may only turn to it a couple of times a year if I'm just in a certain mood. And certainly, I think many might have the experience that the music can take one to a dark place just to play both sides. One of my clients I've been working with for a number of years had mentioned in a recent session that for this particular client, whenever they we're playing a certain instrument, it, it just really it almost enhanced depressed mood, which a bit counterintuitive, but through that trial and error, I think they found that that probably wasn't the greatest coping tool for them. In terms of trying to package something that might be effective for some, but yet also give that kind of cautionary indication, I, I know for many years, for those of us in the VA system, what we often do is we may have, say, a handout for our new whole health program and we may say hey here's the here's tai chi classes yoga classes and so forth but yoga is another great example that many people probably traditionally think oh it's got to be helpful and it couldn't be harmful that's probably not the case injuries can happen in yoga and people get dehydrated after hot yoga classes all the time and so we have to just have that disclaimer and i would think that don't quite know what the correct terminology might be maybe some other people could weigh in on that but i think to provide a list of either songs for a given survivor or just the general promotion of using music and that to heal, but just to let them know that, hey, play around with this. You might find that if it's making you a little bit emotional, but yet gives you that sense of relief just a few minutes after as the next couple of hours move on, then maybe it's good. But yet, if you're hearing music that just takes you to triggers you so much, and then you become really overwhelmed, and it's kind of tough to get back to where you were earlier in the day, then maybe let's look at some either some other some other examples or other routes to that. And one I want to mention is that, as I alluded to earlier, music definitely, whether or not you're consuming or playing, I think is is for most probably the mo- very accessible and something that's very familiar. Many people, my, myself included, I find it difficult to get through a flight or a run without my earbuds in and without listening to something. But the lost art of actually writing, I don't know how many people actually write with their hand anymore, um, like a handwritten letter or something like that. But journaling, whether or not you do it the old fashioned way and have your journal or even typing, but that's another creative art to consider. We actually just recently had a really intriguing veteran, a arts and humanities for veterans summit for the state of Louisiana in New Orleans. And and that's one of many reasons I've decided to take this new role that being in a city that's just the music just bleeds out of the city in, in New Orleans, as well as a lot of other arts. And it was really moving because we had one veteran, I believe his name is Jeff Key, and he did some spoken word. And I read poetry all the time. And his work about the children's faces in Iraq and how the animals and the children or his teacher was just really profound. And then another veteran displayed some of her paintings that she had done. Another veteran, you might not think of this, but another veteran did some comedy. And so I I really think that it's just finding your medium. Like most musicians have to find their instrument that they can really speak through. I think for survivors and people dealing with lived experience, I think just finding any kind of creative art that might really speak to that person's interests and and who they are and maybe allows them to communicate some things that are difficult to really say in words. Those paintings did it, the poetry can do it, even some journaling and writing, and maybe for some they take it a step further and do a short story. Or We know several examples, of course, of folks in AES who've written entire books on their experience with losing a child or losing a sibling or 
someone very close to them. I think that's what it's about is for each of us to take a step back and either through working with a, a talented therapist or doing our own soul searching, finding the mediums that really work the best for us. Yeah, yeah. So important that, that you keep emphasizing that it's not a one size fits all and that it takes time and it may be some trial and error to finding your medium or, or and it's probably not only one, but I was just thinking back, we recently had an art exhibit here at our Rocky Mountain Regional VA and it was both paintings and this uh, one sculpture called The Silent Battle and it was really a, a channeling of some of that loss and soul searching after losing people in battle and losing loved ones to suicide and then channeling that into this beautiful and powerful sculpture that then led to so many conversations and so many people stopping in the hallway and just that community centering around it and just seeing how art can impact people in so many different ways. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Adam. That I, I think I might have, uh, in some video or at some conference, maybe the VADOD conference we had on suicide prevention in Nashville, I think it, it may not be that exact sculpture, but one very similar was shown in a video. And I'm so glad you mentioned that for others, it might take the form of the graphic arts or even things like sculpture. And uh, yeah, just really out of the box, creative means for others, it might be just contributing graphic arts for awareness or just literally so much can be done. And, and I, I think that's what makes the process so appealing is that it can be so open-ended and there's a reason why people still will sign up to just have fun with it and go to a class to paint starry night among with 20 other people and, and that sort of thing. But in, in a lot of cases, I think it's something like that sculpture you mentioned that really says a lot about the person and is probably kind of more original content and all of that but yeah and another thing that was coming up in my mind was what about cooking even something like making a dish that was your loved one's uh, favorite or was their signature recipe or or things like that can really honor them and again that might not work for everybody but that might be something in my personal life that I'm now thinking is an example of how uh, you can channel that in a really positive way yeah, absolutely. The culinary arts are another area to go into. And, and I think one of the many exercises I often recommend to the clients is to cook one of their favorite meals. And as they're cooking it, just really, you know, focus in on the, the sizzle of the pan and the colors of the, you know, red and green peppers and just really using it as a tool for mindfulness and to some degree as a mechanism for flow. And so I think that's something that we often can get from a lot of these uh, creative expressions and humanities, but yet others that can also take place in things like and going hiking and just so many others. I, I think that the big difference there again is that some of these creative arts, like with music and poetry and sculpture, just really relay a message. And there again, just uh, it's nice that despite some of the tragedies we all go through, there's just so many different directions to take things. And one other one other program that I came across when I was out in the LA area. Um, touring the whole health program at the Los Angeles VA, I know there's a program there for theater and that Tom Hanks and a few other folks have put together a program where veterans come in and they learn how to put on a play. And some of them do set design. Some of them are the actors in the play. Some of them do the lighting. And just what a great idea. Again, just really, it's just so great to see programs like that in their area. And those are exactly the kinds of programs that I'm looking to build and grow and enhance in the New Orleans area in the future. 
Wonderful. Yeah. And putting on our research hat for a second, you mentioned at the beginning, a lot of just background research on post-traumatic growth, but where are we at in terms of looking into some of this related to the arts and their positive effect? Yeah, I'm not really quite sure off the top of my head. I think that, you know, I know Steve Stack does a lot of good work in looking at film and suicide and and a lot of these other kind of examples of uh, how suicide makes its way into some of our, our content. But outside of a few studies that have looked at journaling and writing uh, paradigm for survivorship, several of those were actually done by my graduate school mentor, Lillian Range. There's really, to my knowledge, I don't think there's been a lot of either tightly controlled studies. Now, one of the reasons that might not be so prevalent in the literature is you might have to go to, say, the Journal of Poetry Therapy or maybe a, it's it's probably going to be found in some other pockets. But yeah, to this point, I think that's probably yet again, something that hopefully we'll see more of like in the the next five to 10 years. Excellent. Yeah. I think that theater example you brought up was be a really interesting example. Having so many people played so many different roles and coming together to build this bigger piece and uh, seeing how maybe over time, if you could figure out how to turn that into a longitudinal study, just just throwing some ideas out there, but really interesting. We were thinking here, uh, Daniel and I have been throwing out some ideas that have maybe helped us along our journeys. And we really would be curious if any listeners have any insights into what's worked for you. And uh, we'd love to uh, hear from you. You can certainly email me and at that is adam.hoffberg at va.gov. And we'd love to put together a little bit of uh, ideas that folks share. So if you have any ideas that ways of post-traumatic growth that have worked for you in your journey surviving after suicide loss or also surviving after experiencing suicide or going through a crisis, we'd love to hear from you. And with that, I want to turn it back over to Daniel just to see if you have any uh, closing remarks or parting words to help us round this out. Sure, absolutely. The In reference to what you just mentioned, Adam, I think that's a list and Again, those are some of the things that really inspire me or just hearing from other people what's worked well for them. And in fact, one of the clients I'm working with right now who faced a traumatic bereavement, his mechanism has been opera. So it's really fascinating just how specified and just how unique they can be. But in terms of final words, I think, again, this is something that we've got a small group of us championing in the field. And it will just really be interesting over the years, I think that from a research perspective, the the things that we lack, and these are also the kinds of things that I know Tedeschi and Calhoun and I have talked about over the years, is having really good longitudinal studies of PTG, because this is a concept that's very enduring and usually occurs over a long period of time. We, we really need longitudinal studies as well as perspective studies, studies where we might say give uh, wide variety of people measures at a given time at a given point in time and then we go back a few years later we sample the ones who unfortunately may have experienced you know something traumatic or had a really significant bout with suicidality and then we track those patterns of growth those are the things that are really missing for us at this point but there again just like we were talking about the creative arts i think the flavor that post-traumatic growth takes with each individual can be very idiosyncratic. And I think I want to make also a grand point that some may say that despite what 
the clinician might say or what the books from Tedeschi and Calhoun might say, they will stand fast to the notion that I lost my daughter and I just could not find my way back. It will forever be. And I can completely respect and understand that. And I'm really not quite sure where a clinician should go with that, given that even if you think growth might be possible, again, for, for certain people, it just doesn't seem to emerge or maybe it just emerges really slowly. But I think for the vast majority, just at least introducing the concept to them when the time is right. And there are some really good materials from Dr. Tedeschi. If anyone would like to see some of the slides, I've presented this topic for some of the national CBOT grand rounds in the VA and for Baylor College of Medicine here. I'd be glad to share those. And again, feel free to check out some of the work from some of our colleagues. I will mention, too, that both Calhoun and Tedeschi have their, I, I know Dr. Calhoun is retired and Dr. Tedeschi still sees uh, patients and all of that, but yet um, what's really exciting to me is the next guard, people like myself and Dr. Vega and Dr. Lazine and many of the Dr. Moore, of course, Dr. Grupo and Dr. Sorrell, just thinking about how we can continue to promote this concept where your garden variety suicide survivor or your garden variety Vietnam veteran Whenever we just give out the PTGI, as we do also have a, we have a manualized treatment that we've been using in the VA system that a few colleagues have adopted, which has been great to see. But sometimes on just the first session, we give them the PTGI and encourage them to think about how their experience of combat might have actually enhanced their life. And it's just so moving to, to see how people will say, wow, I never really thought of that. But now that I reflect on it. But yeah, it's allowed me to not sweat the small stuff as much. I might still have my PTSD symptoms and all the other scars of war, but also with that, I might have a, a newfound sense of strength or a newfound sense of spirituality or how I can relate to others in my life and, and to the community. Those are the things that I think make the job really rewarding and uh, really worthwhile. Mm. Yeah, really good note to end on. And for listeners, any of you are inspired by what Daniel spoke about today, we really encourage you to connect, uh, reach out. Obviously, like you mentioned, lots of research to be done and, and lots of interesting um, angles to go from here. Thank you again for shedding light on this topic. And listeners, we encourage you to check out the podcast notes. There will be uh, lots of great links for you to take a deeper dive. And uh, thank you again, Daniel, for providing your time and your expertise in this area today. Hey, it's always a pleasure. And I, I also have really consumed and appreciated a lot of the other podcasts you guys are putting out. So keep up all the good work. Thank you. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today's episode. Uh, thank you for joining us and join us for more interviews on important work on suicide prevention, resilience and post-traumatic growth.